tell you that his name is Cody. He's a little OCD on some things. Um, I'm not going to name all of them because we don't have that much time. Just a few things. But let me just tell you about the one that just kind of cracks me up. He'll open up the refrigerator and he'll grab what's ever in there, if it's salad dressing or if it's cottage cheese or whatever. And the first thing he does is he looks for the expiration date on that thing. And if the expiration date was the 17th and today's the 18th, it goes in the trash can. It drives my wife nuts because she'll eat it until there's something growing on it and then she'll throw it away. <laughs> but not, not Cody. He takes whatever it is and he'll even come into the kitchen like when we're there and I'm cooking and he'll go, so do you know when that expired? And I said, it hasn't yet because you haven't eaten it. And he's kind of like, no, um, you know. And so he really gets kind of goofy about the whole thing. And so a lot of times what I say is after we cooked it, I, you know, I put something in whatever I'm making. I go like, oh, shoot, that expired a month ago. And you just watch him. He's about ready to throw up. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it just drives him crazy. And, and but, you know, I, I get expiration dates because there are some things you just don't want to take a chance on, right? But the interesting thing is, is that there are expiration dates on everything thing. You have an expiration date. The problem is you can't find it. Only God knows where it is. And when you have expired, you have expired. There's expiration dates on uh, your car. One day it's just going to give up the ghost, kind of like I thought mine did last week out here in the parking lot. I went to get in my car and it has a fob. Do you know what a fob is? I didn't know that's what that thing was called until uh, Wayne said, your fob is not working. I kind of went like, anyway. <laughs> so I couldn't get into my car. And so he said, you know, um, John said, maybe the batteries on your fob are dead. So I changed the batteries on the fob. That didn't do anything. But luckily they have this little key you pull out and you can open up your car and you can get in. And uh, I haven't had this car very long, so I don't know much about it. And so I had to get the manual out to find out because nothing was working. Lights weren't working. Nothing. I mean, it was deader than a doornail. And so I, I got the, uh, the little key thing off, but I couldn't get the, the thing turned to start the car. And so I said to Tyson, I think the battery's dead. So we ran down to one of the auto places, got a battery, put a new battery in it, and it still wouldn't work. And so I got the manual out, and I read some more on this thing. And all of a sudden, I figured out what I had to do to get it started. So I finally got a place where I could start it. And when I started it, the alarm went off and the light started flashing. <laughs> Luckily, my three friends came along. They helped me to figure it out. It took us a, quite a while to figure out how to get everything to shut off. Because I had to be in Billings. We were leaving for Billings that last, last Sunday because I had some meetings up there. And, and it was just like... Finally got everything shut off, but when we started driving, I realized that nothing else was working. So, I mean, it was working, but you couldn't change anything. So the heater, wherever it was set and whatever temperature it was set on, is what it was going to be from here to Billings. And so, anyway, I got it up there and I got it in the dealership. And the funniest thing is, is that it, they're on the outside because of this little fob thing, recognizes the car recognizes the fob 
right in the handle, there's a little sensor that says open the door because the fob is here. And that little sensor went out and it cut, shut the whole car down. Just one little sensor. Expiration date. Done. Gone. Let me tell you about something that doesn't have an expiration date. There's no shelf life on it. It will never expire and that's love. You can never, you can never drain all of God's love out of God. It, it, it's just like kind of crazy. There is no expiration date on love. And so that's where we're going to be today is finishing off 1 Corinthians 13. And let me read the passage to you and then we'll move on from there. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now, let me just kind of start off. We're going to go right up to the very beginning of that again. And it says love never ends. The supply of God's love never is exhausted. It never, it, it does not fail to accomplish its goal. God's love always accomplishes what it was meant to be. But how can it possibly be true that love never ends, though? That's kind of a big question. It, because it's never exhausted it never fails to accomplish the goal that it's set out for. And the problem for many of us is that we have wrongly understood the statement. We have imagined that it's saying love never suffers. Love is never frustrated. Love is never confused. Love is never, is, uh, never lonely. And of course, the passage doesn't say that at all. What the passage simply says is that love never ends. But... Anybody who's ever stepped in or attempted to love somebody will, will frequently know that love is lonely and that love is um, confused and uncertain. But the promise that we find here is that love never fails, not that love never hurts, because love does hurt. In fact, we can ass uh, assert with confidence that love never ends because we know what the future holds for us. We know what the end is going to be for us. It, it's, it's not that hard. We remain in the battle. I mean, every day, sometimes it's a battle just to get up and love. Some, some days we're just grumpy about everything and everyone. And so it's hard for us to imagine that love never ends. But the promise has been made that love never ends. And one of the things we know is that as we fight through this life, continuing to press on into the love that God has given to us that we know what the end result is going to be. Because one day, guilt and shame are going to disappear. They will be no more for us. Death is done. It's been finished. And in John chapter 1, it says that the light shines in darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. In other words, Jesus Christ is the light. He came into a dark world. And the darkness of this world has never overcome the love of Christ. Not ever, not in one single place. 
How many of you remember when the U.S. was in a, um, what did they call it? A conflict in Vietnam. Really? You're not that old? All right. So it's just us old folks that remember that, right? And you remember when the North invaded the South and everybody was fleeing? They were taking, we had Alliance missionaries in Vietnam. And we had Alliance missionaries that were martyred in Vietnam during the war. And when they left, they, the, the church was just this fledgling little thing. Just, and, and all the missionaries were, were fearful that when the darkness of the north came into the south of Vietnam, that that would be the end of the church. It would not survive. But God's made a promise that his love endures all things. It never ends. And you remember Evan Evans who was here? Our international worker? Well, he grew up in Vietnam. He went back to Vietnam. He went to see where, where his friends' parents were killed. And he visited the church in Vietnam. Do you know how large the church? A church, one of the churches in Vietnam is. It's the world's largest church, one million people. One million people in one church. And there are churches all over Vietnam. Because the love of God cannot be quenched by darkness. The light of Jesus shines through in the darkest times. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about how love is always there for us because it's God's love. It's not the love that we manufacture ourselves. It's not something we bring to the table. It's all about God and what God produces. And when he says, I want you to have my love, what he wants us to do with that love is then to take that love and give it to other people. Because there's no shelf life on it. You can't you can't outlive God's love. You can't give it all away. It's always there. So let me just kind of back up a little bit because for the last two weeks, we've looked at this chapter. And, and two weeks ago, we were in verses 1 through 3 where Paul spoke about the measure of love. We saw that love is the standard by which God measures our lives. Nothing we say, nothing we have, nothing we do has any value apart from love. In other words, everything we do has got to be based in God's love for it to have any meaning or effect eternally. Then last week, we looked at verses 4 through 7 where Paul described the character of love. We talked about the fact that if, if God measures our entire life according to the measure of our love, then we'd better understand what love truly is. And Paul described that love for us through verses 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, and so on. That's what, that's what Paul described for us on, on the character of love. But the question that really is before us is, why does God measure our lives according to love? Why not by some other standard? Why not by faith or maybe our accomplishments or the sacrifices we make? Why not according to our spiritual gifts? Because that's what we're really dealing with here. The interesting thing, that was what the standard that the Corinthians wanted to use was their spiritual gifts. In fact, they were so busy measuring up their lives by their spiritual gifts that they had forgotten completely about love, about God's love, and that they were called to love God and to love other people. And so here in verses 8 through 13, Paul addresses the very specific issue for the Corinthians. Why does God measure our lives by love rather than by spiritual gifts? 
And in answering the question for the Corinthians, Paul also answers our more general question of why God chooses love as a measure over all other things. Paul gives the Corinthians two excellent reasons why love is superior to to spiritual gifts as a measure of life. The first one is, is that spiritual gifts are temporary. They have a shelf life, as it were, while love is permanent and has no expiration date. So let's look at verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecy, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Here is where Paul's going to contrast which contrast love which never ends with prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. And those are the, the three gifts. They're very important gifts for the church. And, but they're temporary. They don't last forever. And so let's take a look at each one of them one by one. First, the gift of prophecy. We spoke about this gift in our study in verses 1 through 3, and we saw that the gift of prophecy is, from the, is a Holy Spirit-given ability to speak God's word to man. We saw that sometimes this is involved in direct revelation concerning a specific situation, or sometimes God speaks directly to the hearts of individuals through the means of preaching his word. Paul considers the gift of prophecy actually to be the greatest of all spiritual gifts. But he also recognized that it was temporary. There's nothing permanent about it. It's temporary in nature. Prophecy would not continue forever. There would would come a time when prophecy would cease. As a matter of fact, if you go into your Bibles and you go to that little dividing line in your Bible that separates the Old Testament from the New Testament you will find that the last book in the Old Testament is called Malachi. And Malachi was the last prophet in the Old Testament that God spoke through. After Malachi, God quit speaking through his prophets. There was a 400-year period where nobody heard anything from God. And, and, and they actually, the prophecy, there was a prophecy made about that by Micah and it said that, that people were, were in a drought, not for food and water drought, but a longing to have the Spirit of God speak to them. For 400 years, nothing, dead silent. And then came along the next prophet. His name was John the Baptist. And he was the one that was to foretell about the Messiah because the Messiah was right on his heels. Did you know that Jesus was John the Baptist's cousin? They were cousins. And so John the Baptist is saying, hey, my cousin, you know, the guy, the carpenter dude. Well, he's actually the Messiah. And uh, he is the, the one, the anointed one, the son of God. And so he came and herald, proclaimed what God told him to say. And so if there was this little break of 400 years, which on the continuum of eternity is just kind of a little blip, there's going to come a day when prophecy is no longer needed. Because when when we get to heaven, nobody's going to need to tell us the mysteries about God. Nobody's going to need to proclaim to us the glories of Jesus because we're going to be in his presence. We're going to know all that stuff. And so prophecy will no longer be needed when, when Christ comes back to take us home to be 
with him forever. Prophecy, it has a shelf life. And it stops when Christ comes back for us. It's done. But guess what? Love continues on. It continues to go. The next, next Paul speaks about tongues. It's the Holy Spirit-given ability to speak in a language which you have not learned. It says, as for tongues, they will cease. This was the Corinthians' favorite gift. It, 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 it's kind of exciting and it's kind of, you know, crazy when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're able to speak a language to somebody and proclaim the mysteries of Christ and you've never learned that language and they hear about Christ and they come to saving faith. And, and that was their favorite gift and they loved it. And, and once again, there's nothing wrong with the gift of tongues. It's a gift from God. But the question is, then how can it be so bad? The problem was the misuse of tongues, the misplaced emphasis on tongues, and most of all, the unloving attitude that accompanied all of it. And Paul set the record straight. Tongues are temporary. They will eventually cease, and love lasts forever. And then there's the gift of knowledge. Now, Paul says that knowledge is also temporary. As for knowledge, it will pass away. This verse sounds a little bit crazy when you first read it. Because it kind of sounds like when we get to heaven, we're not going to know anything. It's all going to be happy and ignorant, right? Hey, man, how's it going? Good. No, 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 no. That's not what Paul's talking about. Because when we get to heaven, in verse 12, it actually says that our knowledge will absolutely be perfect and complete in knowing all the mysteries of God. We're going to have... Nobody's going to have to tell us anything about it anymore. But what, what Paul's talking about is the spiritual gift of knowledge, which is a person who has been empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and clarity to the Word of God so that people understand it in a way that they can start living it out in their lives. But when we get to heaven, we are not going to need someone to tell us how to do that because we're going to be right there with with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we won't need to know that anymore because we'll be living it in our lives right then with Jesus. And it, it's just an amazing thing. In Jeremiah 31, it says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. When he comes back, we will all know him perfectly. So there's going to be a time when there's no longer a need for the spiritual gift of knowledge because all believers will have full understanding and sight in the mysteries of God. You could say the same thing about every spiritual gift that we have. You could say that about every, every spiritual thing we do. It has a shelf life. We're not going to need it when we get to heaven because we're going to step into something totally new, something totally outside of our uh, understanding of what God's like in heaven, in his presence, in his glory. It's going to be all completely different. And so we don't need any of those things here. And, and that's why Paul gives us this idea that love is superior to spiritual gifts. Because spiritual gifts are temporary, while love is permanent and lasts forever. The second reason Paul gives is that spiritual gifts are partial in nature, while love is complete. Look at verses 9 through 10. 
For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Spiritual gifts, as wonderful as they are and as important they are to the, to the ch- uh, church's spiritual growth, are never perfect or complete in and of themselves. In fact, they are de- they're not designed to be complete. Let me help you understand that. So if you have the, the gift of knowledge, let's take that one, and you can explain all the mysteries found in the Word of God clearly so people understand them, you do not have the fullness of that gift. You do not have it completely. You, you, you still have the gift, but you, don't, you only have it partially. Because what God said is that He's giving out His gifts to His church, that's us, and, and nobody has it completely. Because what I have in preaching and teaching as one of my spiritual gifts, I don't have it completely. Because when I sit down and I listen to other preachers preach, my soul is fed by them. I need them as much as they need me. So if you have the gift of service, you don't have the full gift of service. You serve the church, but there are others who come and serve you. Because that's the way that God created the body so that we would need each other to accomplish the tasks that he's given us to do. So nobody has any gift completely and nobody has any gift in, 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 a, in a perfect way. We just have a little bit of it to help the rest of the body. And somebody else might have the rest of it over here or maybe there's three of us that have that gift. Now, I don't know if he would agree with me or not, but Pastor John also has the gift of teaching and preaching. He doesn't think so, so much. It may not be his top gift, but it's probably second or third on his list. And, and the way I know that is because every time I hear him preach, God ministers to my soul. And it's not about John, it's all about Jesus. And and that's why John is a part of the preaching team. That's why Sean is a part of the preaching team. They just need to quit being so busy so I can get a break from preaching. And so we we all have various spiritual gifts according to the grace that's been given to us. And those gifts are in varying measurement or degree. Nobody has a cornerstone on any expression of a... Any one gift that would defeat the purpose of giving the gifts to the church because the church is to build up the body of Christ, each one using his or her gifts to serve the others and relying on others to use their gifts to serve them. So when Paul says we know in part and we prophesy in part, the gifts of knowledge and prophecy are partial, imperfect, incomplete. No one has a full gift of prophecy. Prophecy. Wow. What was in my coffee this morning? Prophecy or knowledge. But even if they did, they would still be nothing without love. Remember that? Back at the beginning of this chapter in verses 1 through 3, you can have prophecy, you can have knowledge, you can have whatever gift you have, but if you don't have love, it means nothing. Your, your efforts are futile. You're not producing anything for the kingdom of God. And, and so what we're saying is, is that... The, the number one reason why gifts are temporary and that love will last forever is because the gifts are just 
incomplete. They are not perfect. They are partial. And they will one day go away. Now, someone might say, because, you know, love is perfect and it's going to last forever. But someone might point out that no one loves as fully as they ought to. Well, hello, welcome to planet Earth. Right? I mean, just to talk to my wife. She'll tell you. She probably wouldn't really want to, you know, rat me out on what kind of a rat I really am. But if you pressed her, gave her a little bit of money, she'd probably cough it up. You can ask people on the governing board. Sometimes I have a sharp tongue that's not very nice. And then I owe somebody an apology. And so, you know, we don't have it. You're right when we don't have it perfect. It's true. But the difference is there's no limit to the love. We are called to love one another as Christ has loved us. Love is not designed to be partial. Love is designed to be full. We, We may fall short of God's design, but that does not change God's intention for us. In the sense that spiritual gifts are partial by design, love is complete. We're to love others fully and completely, even as Christ has loved us. Now, some of you might, or some people, argue that the gift of prophecy and tongues and knowledge were all temporary gifts to begin with. But they were only intended to be in the church until the church came into completion. What they do is they interpret the phrase, when the perfect comes as meaning when the writing of the Bible has been completed. And then when the Bible was completely written, and we have what they call the canon, all 66 books of the Bible, then those gifts cease to be in existence because they were only for a short period of time. That's a very common interpretation in a lot of churches today. I will tell you that is not the interpretation of this church or of me. I believe that all the gifts are still here for us, God's going to give those gifts to us to use to build the church. But I think the more natural meaning of Paul's words, and I think you'll probably agree with me, is when the perfect comes, refers to the coming of God's kingdom in all of its fullness when Christ returns. That's when things become perfect. Right now they're imperfect. They're flawed. Because why? We're human beings and we're sinful. And we make mistakes and we say stupid things and we do dumb things. And that's what happens. And, and so what, what Paul's saying is, is that when Christ returns, we will be perfect and complete. We will be resurrected with our new perfect bodies brought into God's perfect heavenly kingdom. Now, here's the point that Paul's making. And, and it doesn't matter how you interpret it. Paul's point still holds true. Love is superior to, spir- to spiritual gifts as a measure of our lives. Why? Spiritual gifts are temporary and partial. Love is permanent and complete. Next in verses 11 through 12, Paul gives two examples from life to illustrate this truth. The example of growing to maturity from childhood and the example of looking at one's reflection in the mirror. The childhood example illustrates the temporary nature of spiritual gifts. The mirror example illustrates the partial nature of spiritual gifts. So let's look at the childhood example first. And this is where Paul illustrates this in verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, um, 
I had someone ask me this week because they cheated a little bit and they read this passage ahead of time because they knew I was going to preach on it. And the question was an excellent question because when Jesus calls us to faith, he says you have to have the faith of a child. And now Paul's saying, put away childish things. And we're going, wait, wait a minute, I'm a little bit confused. Jesus says, come with faith as a child. Paul says, put away childish things. Paul's great. Jesus is greater. He's the Messiah. He created. Jesus wins. Paul loses. We get to be childish. <laughs> no, that is not what they're saying. The thing about children, even up till 12, when they hit 13, there's a switch that goes off in their brain. And they're no longer your children. They're an alien. <laughs> and you don't know what to do with them. You want to give them back to whoever dropped them in, your, in their bed at night. Take them back. But children up to 12, they have such a trusting nature. I remember my kids, I would put them up on a ladder. Like eight feet up on the ladder. And I'd go, right here, buddy. Okay. And I'd catch them absolute trust and faith that I was not going to go like, oops, that's bad. Oh, we should get you to the doctor maybe. Uh, just rub some dirt in it, right? Because a child absolutely trusts the parent to do the best thing for them all the time. That's what Jesus said. You know, you as good parents know how to give good gifts. When a kid asks for an egg, you're not going to give him a scorpion. Or he wants a fish, you're not going to give him a snake. You know, those kinds of things. We know how to give good gifts, and our kids trust us. And so when Jesus says, come to me as the faith of a child, it means that when there are times when Jesus says, you're standing right on the edge, and you're looking down, and Jesus says, hey, jump. And you're like, that's a big jump, Jesus. I don't know if I can make that leap of faith. But when we do, he's right there. He's got the net. He catches us, and we're like, that was crazy. It's just, it's mind-boggling what God does when we take faith as a child. But what Paul's talking about here is totally different than that. Children differ from adults in many ways. Let me run you through a few. They think differently. They think that, you know, Cheetos... And M&M's are a balanced diet. They're not. They think differently. They talk differently. They reason different, differently. And here's the weird thing. If an adult talked like a child, like a four-year-old or a three-year-old, we would think there's something wrong with them. If they thought like a child... You know, I mean, because children, well, how many times do you have to tell a child, don't touch it because it's hot? You have to tell them that until they actually touch it. Can you imagine an adult always walking up to a hot stove and going, well, I wonder if this thing's hot. It looks like there's fire and there's... We'd go, there's something wrong with that guy because he's still behaving like a child. And so what, what Paul is, is wanting us to do is he, he, he wants us to be kind of in this this illustration that he's giving us, to grow up and become mature spiritually. We're to grow into adulthood spiritually, continually to put away childish things, put them behind us. We just, we don't do the things that a toddler does anymore. 
We don't do the things that a 10-year-old does anymore. And I hope you're not doing the things you did when you were in high school. Because some of those are really stupid. And so you need to grow up. That's what, that's what Paul is saying. Grow up and become men and women of maturity. That's what it means. And that's the same way with spiritual gifts. Because the spiritual gifts that we have, they're necessary, but they're a temporary development. We use the spiritual gifts to do what? Build the church, right? We're to build the church. Is the church built? No. Follow along with me. Stick with me. I'll give you the answers. The church is not built. Look around. Just look around in here. How many empty seats are there? There's a bunch. Does that mean that there's more people that need Jesus? Yep. Do they need to be discipled? Yep. Do they need to grow in maturity? You bet they do. And so what's our job, our responsibility? To come here and sit in these really nice memory foam seats and enjoy the worship time and and listen to Pastor Ken drone on for about a half an hour now and hope he's going to be done in the next five minutes so he can get back and grab the last of the donuts and the coffee and then head for home and get some lunch. And then we just shake hands with everybody and love on each other and go like, man, it's so great to see you. I can't wait to see you next Sunday. No, that's not, what, that's not the, the intention of the church. Jesus gave us our marching orders just before he ascended into heaven. He said to his disciples, the authority, my dad gave me the authority over everything, all authority. I have authority over everything. And because I have authority, now I want you to go and make disciples And I want you to baptize those disciples. Then I want you to teach them everything that I taught you. That's what I want you to do. That mission has not changed one little lick in 2,000 years. We're still on mission. And the the day we know when that mission is completed is when Jesus comes back. Until then, we're growing towards maturity to become more like Christ in our love and to do the work that he's given us to do. Now let's use, go to the next one. Paul uses the illustration of a mirror. Whereas childhood example illustrates the temp- temporary nature of spiritual gifts, the mirror example illustrates the partial, partial nature of spiritual gifts. Look at verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The mirrors in Paul's day were not like our mirrors. They weren't made out of glass with a coating on the backside. What they would do is they would take um, a metal, some kind of a metal substance, and they would polish it to use it as a mirror. And so their mirrors really weren't very good. But here's the crazy part. The Corinthians, like the city of Corinth, they were known for making the best mirrors out of metal in the world. So they had the best mirrors. And I kind of think that's why Paul kind of uses this one with the Corinthians is he goes, you guys think you really have it all together because you've got these really great mirrors in your house? But let me tell you something. What you see in the mirror is just partial. There's no clarity to it. There's no definition to it. And so that's the way it is with our love. If, if we don't step into it like we're supposed to, you know, it's like our spiritual gifts. We don't see clearly with the spiritual gifts. They're only partial in nature. 
And, and through these gifts we see but a poor reflection in the mirror of what the church of Jesus should look like. And when Jesus returns and the church is perfected in love, we shall see face to face. We know in part now, then we shall know fully, even as God fully knows us. Why is love superior to spiritual gifts as a measure of our lives? Spiritual gifts are temporary. Love is permanent. Spiritual gifts are partial by nature. Love is complete. Now, Paul has explained to the Corinthians why God measures our lives by love rather than by spiritual gifts. Now he goes on to explain why God chooses to love as a measure of life over all other things. Look at verse 13. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Here in 13, Paul proclaims the superiority of love not only to spiritual gifts, but to all other things. Okay, let me help you out on this a little bit. I'm assuming you got married because you thought you loved the person you got married to, correct? Probably three weeks into it, you went like, what did I do? You know, it's called buyer's remorse. You buy something, you feel really good about it, and then all of a sudden it kind of hits up on you. You're going like, (gasps) oh, you feel sick to your stomach kind of a thing. Wait, am I the only one that felt that way? Okay, so that's kind of, you know, this this whole thing is is that we, we love this person. And then we did what God said to do. We procreated. That means have babies. For you young kids. Okay? We had babies. And guess what? We loved those babies. Matter of fact, in my family, when we were married, I was number one. And then when Leela came along, I was number two. And then Justin came along, I was number three. Tyson came along, I was number four. Carissa came along, I was like in fifth place. And now we've got Priscilla. I'm not even on the scale anymore. Because we love our kids and we love our grandkids. Because they're so awesome. And we love them. But guess what? When Paul talks about this this love that we're talking about here. Is that. Man. The greatest thing is love. Of God. It's greater than your spouse. It's greater than your children. It's greater than your grandkids. It might even be greater than fly fishing. I'm not sure. I know I am. 100% sure. So let's just walk through the three of these things real quick here. First of all, there's faith. Faith is essential to a life in Christ. Hebrews 11 says, Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Without faith, it is impossible, impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he, he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We're saved through faith. We're justified justified by faith. And the Bible tells us that the righteous will live by faith. Faith is one of the highest virtues for a Christ follower. Faith abides because faith is a human response to a divine provision. Faith is doing something with God, with what God has given you, and that it's going to go on through all eternity. We lack everything as human beings. We really don't bring anything to the table. We are nothing in and of ourselves. 
We are constantly taking wisdom and power and instruction and ability from the hand of God. And everyone's doing it whether they recognize it or not. There is no ability to function as a human being without the gift of God, His gift of life. And faith is a simple, deliberate response to the provision of God. Therefore, it abides and we will go on doing that throughout eternity. Second, there's hope. Hope is also essential to our life in Christ. We have the hope of salvation, the hope of the resurrection, the blessed hope of Christ's return. Our hope is not like the world's hope, marked by uncertainty and doubt. Rather, our hope is bold, strong, and confident in the promises of God. Hope does not disappoint, as Paul writes in Romans, because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given to us. Hope is another of the highest of all spiritual virtues. Hope abides because hope is the expectation of more yet to come. And there's a phrase earlier in this letter that we looked at way back 30-some times ago where it says that God, therefore, is going to keep opening our eyes to the new vistas because the things God has prepared for, uh, for those who love Him in, the, in advance. It's the hope that we have. New opportunities, new adventures in faith. It will never grow old. It never gets less. It will go on and on forever and ever because God is infinite. Therefore, hope abides. But love abides too. And the reason love is the greatest is because God is love. Now listen, God is not faith and God is not hope. God is who we put our faith into and, the, and God is who we have hope in. But, but God is not hope and He's not faith. But God is love. And that's why it's the greatest. Because it's, it's absolutely the essence of God coming to us through His pouring out of the Spirit upon us. And therefore, to learn to love is to achieve absolute paramount value of the entire universe. To become like God because God is love. And that is what it's all about. Is it not? Now the lie of the devil in the Garden of Eden. He said this. If you disobey God, you will be like God. You will learn how to have a a fulfilled life. That lie and the sad results are visible to all of us all around us. In our lives and in our world today. But the word of God says to trust him, to follow him. To use what he gives us so that one day we will discover that the clouds will pass away, the mist will melt, the morning breaks, the shadows flee, and you are face to face with him and you are like him. Therefore, a love abides and the greatest of these is love. We're going to get to this down the road, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he, Paul starts off with these four words. Make love your aim. The word is pursue it. Set your heart on it. Make it your chief goal. Work at it. Think about it. Aim toward it. Follow it. Pursue it. That's the idea. That is what his life is all about. To become loving, compassionate, patient, kind, truthful person. 
That's the reason why we exist. Everything must either minister to us to that end or be regarded as useless and a waste of time. May God help us to hold this clearly in our minds and understand the reality of these words. The greatest of these is love. Now, if you're going to make a list of all the ways God could measure our lives, faith, hope, and love would have to be at the top. And out of these three, Paul says the greatest is love. Why? Why does love show at the top? For the same exact reason why we are not measured by spiritual gifts. Everything else is temporary. And nothing reflects the character of God. So let's wrap it up real quick. In 15 minutes. So Paul demonstrated the supremacy of love over all other things as a measure of our lives. The entire chapter is one of the most beautiful and meaningful passages in all of Scripture. Let us review it one last time. Let me walk you through this entire chapter. Verses 1. You guys are going like he's not kidding in 15 minutes. Verses 1 through 3 answer the how question. How does God measure our lives? The answer is love. Nothing we say, nothing we have, nothing we do has any value apart from love. Love is the standard by which God measures our lives. Verses 4 through 7 answers the what question. If love is the standard by which God measures our lives, then what is love? The answer is love is patient, love is kind, love is long-suffering, love is, and you can fill in the blank, or basically is what we said last week, love is like Jesus. And now verses 13, 8 through 13, answer the why question. Why does God measure our lives according to love? The answer is because love is the greatest thing of all. Spiritual gifts are temporary and partial. Love is permanent and complete. Even faith will change to sight and hope will change to fulfillment. But love will never be replaced. Love outlasts everything. It has no shelf life. It never expires. It is always fully there, full on, all the time. You can never drink up all of God's love. And these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Amen? Amen. Woo! All right, reflective questions. If you didn't get the paper, it's sitting right back there on the uh, counter, and you can pick one up on your way out but you'll forget before you leave, so that's on you. How full is your love bucket? That's agape love. What temporary things do you need to put aside in order to make love a greater priority? What are you investing in that has a shelf life of this world that in a few few years will seem childish? Of all the spiritual virtues that you're pursuing, which one is at the top of your list? What do you need to start doing today to make love the greatest virtue in your life and bring faith and hope into second and third place? Our Father, we are so thankful that your love never gives up on us. There are times when we give up on you. There are times when we give up on each other. There are times when we give up on the church. We give up on everything. 
We look at stuff and we know it has a, a shelf life. We know one day it is going to no longer be worthy of what, of what we're investing into it. But yet your love endures forever. Your love is the greatest thing we could ever experience in our life. And the reason you've poured your love out to us through your son, Jesus, is so that we can be the administrators of your love to other people. That we can take it and we can give it away freely because the more we give it away, the more we get. And so help us to be great lovers, Jesus. Help us to be great lovers of you, of your word, of the people you've placed around us. Help us to give our love away knowing that at every moment that we give it away, you're filling us up with more than what we can handle. So help us to be dispensers of love and truth and grace. Pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.